0: Heavenly Father, with hearts open to You, heads bowed, Father, and the Word open before us, we approach boldly by the grace, Father, that You've poured out through Your Son. We have an opportunity tonight in ways that so many others do not, Father, to not only know we are one with You through the Spirit, to know, Father, we have been made clean by the blood of Christ to have an eternity await us in Your presence. But even now, Father, with all of that yet before us, we have even now the gift of the fellowship of saints, the opportunity, Father, to pray and intercede for one another, and the Word, the Word, Father, that is life to us and molds us and grows us into the man or woman You would call us to be. Father, Your gifts just never seem to end, and yet... In our way of thinking, Father, and the way we see the world around us so often we are only focused on those things we do not have or on the weaknesses and the trials, the things that that we do not like that uh, we stand so blessed in so many ways and then as we turn to your word tonight father we we know we come assembled to hear the words of a man, but not just the words of a man, Father, we pray that they would be your words, and that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher let the Word, Father, come rest in our hearts and do its proper work, the work, Father, to mold us and to convict us, and ultimately, Father, to witness to the love that you have shown us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're just beginning, Isaiah. Last week certainly was our first entry into the book, and any book of this magnitude will take a little bit of time to get momentum. Right to get to the point where we we have a sense of what the writer is working to do and how we are going to follow with him. So this week will help us build a little more momentum. We're certainly not going to remain in an introductory phase. We're going to get well into chapter 2, and in chapter 2, get into eschatology. I keep offering you that teaser because I do want you to know that the book has a lot to offer in that realm, and we come to it very quickly in chapter 2. It's very fascinating. I think you'll see tonight what I mean. To get into it properly, let's remind ourselves of some of where we've been, just briefly. Keeping the structure that I started last week, and the structure was four principal themes in this book, and in typical Eastern Hebraic style, the teacher here, Isaiah, is going to present these themes in a somewhat circular pattern. And you all, I'm sure if you were here last week, you remember this, where there is a lot to be said on each of these themes, but the writer is not going to take you through each theme linearly from beginning to end. He's rather going to take you through elements of the theme, pieces of it, one at a time. And each piece, he sort of visits in a holistic way. And therefore, as you move through the book, we'll come to these same four themes over and over again. But each time we come back to a theme, we will cover it again In a different and expanded way. So that with each turn of that circle you learn more about that theme. That's the Eastern or Hebraic style of teaching. Let's put some detail to this. What was one of the first themes we studied last week? Was the sin of Israel. The theme was man's sin or Israel's sin specifically. The sin of man. I'm going to just abbreviate it as sin. But it's really focused primarily in the book on Israel's sin. Last week we saw a certain amount of discussion around Israel's sin. If you're not good with your observing skills, when the topic of sin comes up again, here's what the the common response from an average Bible reader is. You start to read, you start to see the theme again, you start to hear some of the same words, and what do you do? You start to read a little faster, right? Your mind sort of floats over some of the detail. Oh, got this, I knew this one. Okay, yeah, bad Israel, here we go again waiting for the next new thing. With that feeling, you just caught yourself in the Greek or Hellenistic, Alexandrian style of learning, which is common, of course, in our culture and has been since Alexandrian times, and that is to linearly approach a topic such that once I've covered it, I'm done, I'm ready to move on. You know, you, you build in blocks, you, you learn a little you know, basic math, and then you learn a little bit more sophisticated forms of math. Finally, you're up here doing algebra and calculus and so on, And what you learn first builds to what you learn next, and so on. Well, with math, that makes a lot of sense. But in what Isaiah is planning to do, he approaches it very differently, where you get a a kind of holistic view over and over again. You've got to know the second and third and fourth time you see this topic, there is yet still more to be seen. So we still need to go slowly and look at the text. We're talking here about their idolatry, right? The rejection by Israel of their Lord, who raised them up, as he said. Their rebellion. Then there was a second... Theme, another one of his favorites, it normally follows the first one, they go hand in hand quite commonly, judgment. Israel's sin will necessarily bring judgment. You cannot offend the deity and expect that, that it will go unanswered. He will have an answer for that offense. Tonight we're going to see Isaiah continue to advance those two themes, the circles are going to come up again, but we're also going to see him introduce the two remaining themes. Remember, we've already said chapter one is, in a sense, a mini table of contents for all that's in Isaiah, even as chapters one through five present a more detailed table of contents. So, one through five is a bit of an extended introduction, chapter one all by itself being a mini introduction to the rest of the book. So, in this one chapter, we're going to see the next two show up. The next two, I listed them all last week. You may have noticed, or you may have written them down. Third one, Sovereignty of God. So, God's sovereignty comes up a lot. Now, you can take that in a variety of ways. I mean, sovereignty can be applied to mean a lot of different things. What do you mean, God's sovereignty? Sovereignty in what terms or in what sense? Well, you'll see as Isaiah goes through this book that he'll talk God's sovereignty from several perspectives, but he has one primary perspective. And I'm not going to drop that hint just yet, or I'm not going to give you that answer just yet. It'll come up in the text. Fourth Redemption. But coming redemption, right? So there's a future tense to this redemption. Isaiah's call for Israel to be redeemed is spoken of from a future tense generally. And like the first two things I've already brought up, that Isaiah's already brought up, were closely connected. You almost never see him talk sin without following it soon thereafter with judgment. Similarly, these two are closely linked... In the book. Now, I'm not drawing absolute rules here. I'm making broad statements. So you could probably find exceptions, and fair enough. But generally, Isaiah will speak of these two in conjunction in some form. You'll see some of that, I think, tonight. All right, so let's start where we left off last time. Uh, Tonight, we're going to press through all of one, and and in two, we're going to get this fascinating and, and, I think, tantalizing look into our future, as well as Israel's future, because we're going to look at a fairly detailed description, opening description, of the Millennial Kingdom, the Messianic Kingdom. So, we pick up where we left off last week. 1 through 17, my quick summary. God called, as you know, in the beginning of the chapter, he He called both heavens and earth as witnesses against Israel for their failure to keep the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. If you weren't here last week, Get the recording, but we went through and looked at how these two witnesses were called originally to be there when the covenant was originally created. They're now being called to be witnesses for the fact that it was broken. Then God compares Israel essentially to Sodom and Gomorrah for all of their sin, that they were now offering a false ritualistic form of worship that for all their piety, and remember the nation at this stage in history at the time of Isaiah has reached the zenith of their power more powerful than they were under David and Solomon even. Here they are, a world superpower and full of themselves. And with ritualism and pomp and circumstance, they offer false, outward, externalized religion rather than the true religion, which we noticed last week compares to what James teaches, a religion that is born out of a faithful and grateful heart that leads ultimately to mercy and justice. That's the expectation that they're not meeting. So Isaiah then moved to a theme of judgment. He declared that God despised their worship and he hid himself from their prayers that the hands they lifted up to him in prayer and praise were covered in blood. Which, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that they are murderers. they got blood on their hands. We think of that term. What does it mean to a Jew that you have blood on your hands? You're unclean. It's the worst kind of uncleanliness to have blood to have touched a dead body to have any of that on you. So it was a Way of him saying, you're just you're raising these unclean hands to me. Then lastly, verse 16, God calls them to be true, to repent. Remember that nice breakdown we did through that? It looked, you see the gospel there. Repent and then have true faith. Then that leads to righteous living, which then ultimately arrives at justice and mercy. It's the gospel in coded terms. And then we move to the next section, verses 18 through 20. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, remember the beginning of the first chapter, it's an indictment, the great indictment, where you have charges leveled against the accused. Israel being the accused. Here we see God calling the accused to work with the judge, if you will, to arrive at a better outcome than the judgment they're facing. This is something similar to what uh, Jesus teaches at, uh, I think it's around Luke 12, where he talks to the crowds and says, you can see in the sky the signs of rain coming and say, oh look, it's going to rain, or oh look, it's going to be a hot day, but you can't see the signs around you now in my presence and know that I'm the Messiah. That was his point. He then says, you hypocrites. He says, you know, you're basically acting like you don't know something you should know. Then he says, even the man who has been accused and is being taken to the judge by his accuser knows to make good with his accuser before he gets to the judge because, you know, once you get to the judge, you're going to be thrown in jail. You're going to have to pay every last cent, abbreviating the whole thing, of course. But in that parable or in that teaching, Jesus is stating that the guilty person who knows they're guilty is not so stupid. As to pretend they're innocent. Remember, hypocrite is to pretend you're something you're not. No one is stupid enough if they know they're guilty. To pretend they're not to the one who's accusing them while they're walking to the judge. Because you know if you're guilty, sooner or later they're going to figure that out and then you're going to be thrown in jail. You'd be better off trying to talk your accuser out of it before you get to the judge. And by talk him out of it, he means reconcile. Make peace with your accuser before you get to the judge. Anyone who's guilty would be a fool to maintain their innocence All the way to the point of the judge where then it's too late to negotiate. Of course, the application should be fairly obvious, right? To those who know themselves guilty of sin and yet fail to repent when they have an opportunity still to make peace, they only have, as their future prospect, a date with the judge. And at that point, there's no more opportunity for peace. That's a similar sense here. He says, Come now, let us reason together. In other words, let us work out a deal. But God's deals, of course, are not made on some kind of parallel basis. It's not something where you can negotiate with God. He sets the terms, but he's offering that opportunity while they still have opportunity before the judgment. Now, in Israel's historic sense here, we're talking about the judgment that would fall upon them as that nation went into captivity and later was dispersed. So, again, we have to keep remembering from what I said last week. We deal with Israel as an entity in the Old Testament. The truth for what God speaks to the nation does not necessarily arrive at the individual member of the country. So the nation is under judgment. The nation has this future. The nation has this opportunity to repent. The nation, the nation. Not speaking to what is true for a person. A single person in Israel could have heard these words, repented and been a faithful follower evermore and the nation would still be under judgment because as a nation it was still transgressing the covenant. It was an all or none proposition. One person's individual perspective before God was not setting the tone for the whole nation. So this is a national call. Now, using the image of red versus white here, he says, your sins can be forgiven. And verse 19 gives the condition. If you consent. Now the word in Hebrew for consent is abah, A-B-A-H as you transliterate in English. It's... Translated probably most commonly in the Old Testament as willing. A matter of the will, in other words. So if you consent is if you are willing. If you consent meaning if you will and then obey in the Hebrew shama, Shema. And this is an interesting one. This one's used well over a thousand times, close to 1,200 times in the Old Testament in various ways. But the vast majority of the times it's used in the Old Testament, it's translated to the English in the sense of heed or hear here is actually its most common translation shema is to hear so he's saying if you can if you are willing and if you hear but hear in the sense of heed do as you hear okay if you obey or if you consent is if you are willing if you obey is if you hear or if you heed those are the conditions and god offers to excuse their sin if they are willing to hear and heed and then if they do they'll eat the best of the land. Now, thinking now again of the entity, you have a call to the nation. That nation has to both have a will to receive and then hear it so as to heed it. When the nation is prepared to do that, part of what they'll see happen at that point is they will have the best of the land. Now, if they don't, he goes on to say, they will be rebels and they'll be devoured by the sword. God calls them to hear and to heed. To hear and heed what? Now, Isaiah doesn't explain that. Not in the text so far. And at first glance, given what we know about the indictment that started the book, we might be thinking already, well, of course, he means to hear or to heed the call of the Old Covenant, to obey the covenant. It kind of fits, doesn't it? If the beginning of the book is you're in trouble because you're not keeping to this agreement, then it would make sense when he starts to turn the corner and talk about an opportunity, he would just put the two together, right? But we know from New Testament Scripture, and this is where understanding Scripture requires that we keep the whole book in perspective. What Isaiah wrote in his day was all that was available for that day, certainly, or what was written up to that point. But we're not limited by that. We have the full counsel of Scripture now, and in that we have to be accountable to all that Scripture says. We have to look at it all. And we know from the New Testaments that they could not have kept the Old Covenant perfectly, even if they had tried that the only man who's ever lived on earth and successfully kept all of God's laws is our Messiah. And so it was not possible for them to consent and obey the old covenant if that's what he means. If that's what verse 19 is referring to, it would seem as though he's asking for an impossible solution for the nation. Furthermore, we know as Paul has taught extensively, both in Romans and Galatians, for example, both of which we looked at last week, we know that God's giving of His Old Covenant was not for the purpose of producing righteousness. Paul states that conclusively. It was not given to make men righteous. We often sum it up by saying, the law was not given so as to make us righteous, but to reveal our unrighteousness. By the very fact that you can't keep it, it's meeting its purpose. It's it's revealing your human weakness and therefore driving you to Christ, as Paul teaches in Galatians. So we know that's true of the New Testament, and therefore that truth was true even in the time that Isaiah wrote this. So, when Isaiah says, from, from Isaiah's writing, God's words, that they have some call that they are to hear and heed, there must be some other call in mind, I would argue. It's not that the nation would rise up one day and start living out the law perfectly so as to receive the best of the land. There must be some other call in mind. Now, this gives us a good chance to see the circular manner of Isaiah's teaching at work, because we're going to eventually get to the answer to this question, but it won't come in this go-round. So I feel like I'm under obligation to let him bring the answers to you in his timing, so I'm not going to give you the answer now either. So we'll come back to this when it comes up again, and the answer eventually comes out in the text. For now, I think it's sufficient for us to understand Isaiah is introducing this idea. Remember, this is still the introduction of the book. He's introducing this idea that God is prepared to make a way for redemption for this nation. A redemption that they will see through a hearing and a heeding of a call. Just not necessarily one that we have seen revealed yet in Isaiah. So far we have the theme of man's sin, the theme's judgment. Now this theme of redemption has come up, at least in brief, briefly. Now we bring the three of those together with the fourth. God's sovereignty. And what Isaiah does here in this next section, I want to take a little moment to show you how he does this because this is so typical for his artfulness. Again, I wish we could all just go learn Hebrew well enough that when we came back and read this, it would feel like we're reading a a Hamlet sonnet because that's how he is crafting his language in Hebrew. For example, in Isaiah 21 through 26, which we're going to read now, he does this through chiastic language. He uses a chiasm. Chiasm is a literary structure, a structure in language, that helps us understand the point of the text more clearly and it follows a very simple pattern. It's fun to find them in in the text. You find them all over the Bible, by the way. They're very common, particularly in the Old Testament. This is just an example. They can go at length. The entire book of Ruth is one giant chiasm. Chapter one of Ruth is another chiasm within the larger chiasm. There's chiasms all over the place in Genesis, for example. They're just, they're common. They are like we use outlines The Hebraic mind likes chiasms and they look for them. It's a way of structuring their words. But it's a structure in language that takes events and juxtaposes them in such a way that they are an offsetting pair and they move in parallel so that there's a clear juncture where the change occurs and that's the point of the story. Great one, by the way, if you want to go back and look, is chapter 6 of uh, Genesis. How do you do it, though? It's done artfully. You don't put a Roman numeral 1 and an A and a B It's done much more artfully. Let me read you the first three verses and I'll show you how the chiasm builds. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. What's the theme? Recognize one there? Israel's sin. Back to the theme for a moment. The city, he says here, was once faithful and full of justice and is now a harlot. Which city? Jerusalem. Okay, That's a, a given. If you don't know the city, when you hear it stated as a city without a name, it's always Jerusalem or almost always, contextually you'll know, and in this case it's clearly Jerusalem. The city was once faithful. Now, in Scripture, as you probably know, God is frequently using a comparison between Israel's unfaithfulness and that of an adulterous relationship with a prostitute. So in a marriage, if one of the partners in the marriage were to run off with a prostitute, they're committing adultery against the other partner, and it's an adulterous affair with a prostitute. That's God's preferred image for how he sees his wife, as he calls Israel, running off with idols and worshipping other idols. It's like a woman in a marriage who runs off with a prostitute, commits adultery against the husband. The city has become a harlot. Once they were righteous, now they're murderers. And then he gives comparison using a couple of simple uh, pictures here. If you don't know how they refine fine metals in a smelter, in a heating process, you're taking ore that's a mixture of different elements and you're heating it to the point where they have different weights. So they, they separate out into a, a, a molten mix. And generally, the better materials are heavier. They stay near the bottom. And the, the stuff you don't want flows to the top. We call it dross. And you just scrape that stuff off or p- uh, pick it up off. And you eventually, you get rid of it all. And all you're left with is the good ore. So he says the silver here is actually now dross. And now notice the opposition here. Silver is uh, dross, but then you get the real point when you look at the second example, your fine drinks. The word there for fine drinks in the Hebrew is alcohol. We're talking here about good quality alcoholic beverages. Could be wine. It's a generic word, but it means generally wine or spirits. So you're looking here at the best quality alcohol watered down. The best things turned into polluted things. Worthless things because the, the goodness of them has been changed. And they're rotten from the head down. You notice he talks now about the leaders. The chief leaders are also their chief rebels, companions with thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, chases after rewards. Now, this is a good example of his play on words. Dr. Arnold Frugenbaum says this. He says, Isaiah plays upon a word which is found in the Mosaic Law. He says, Israel was, in the law, was called to be a radaf shalom, which is a pursuer of peace. However, here he says they've become a radaf shalmonin, which is a pursuer of bribes. He's intentionally playing on words, meaning they know what they were called to be, and he's using a very similar phrase to make the point that they're not being what they were called to be. He says, goes on to say, Isaiah is a master of the Hebrew language. He will make many word plays. He will change a dot or a dash or a vowel or even though the words sound very uh, similar, he will change the entire meaning of the word, and he does this throughout the book. You know, the Hebrew alphabet uses pictorial, pictograph-style letters where a simple movement of a a dash or a dot changes the meaning. He will artfully pick words that are only off by a slight movement of a dot or a dash to emphasize what they should have been instead of what they are. Finally, he makes that reference to formalistic false religion again, similar to things he said before about protecting orphans and widows. Why would they not protect orphans and widows? If your formalism is strictly self-centered, which all formalism ultimately is, it's a work of the flesh, I want to feel something that I'm doing so I like the pomp and circumstance and the ritual. That's where my religion is centered. Well, can you eat with that? They don't pay the bills. So at some point, what is fleshly and self-centered has to move to a point of finding some source of benefit beyond merely that prideful feeling of doing the right thing. That's why Jesus always accused the Pharisees of not just being showmen on the street corner, but also lovers of money. They needed the other to really affirm them in a way that the pomp and circumstance could only go so far. It's not a secret, not a mystery why we see people on the television in a Christian veneer hawking themselves for money, right? It's all done with the right words and the right gestures so that you believe you're supporting a Christian ministry if you don't listen to their words carefully. But in background, it's clear enough what they want. There's nothing new under the sun. So here you see the same accusation. The orphans, the widows, well, what are they going to do for them? Nothing. Well, then I don't have my time for you. I'm waiting for the person with the money. One of the chief reasons why I think James is so adamant about the fact that in the way we structure our church services, The last thing we should do is pay honor and homage to the people who have the wealth. Don't go reserving parking spaces and front seats in the pews. Don't give their names on the plaques on the sides of the pews when they donate the money. Don't you dare do anything to highlight the wealth of an individual in God's house. That is following after the footsteps of these people. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, look at how the descent, as we call it, the descent of the chiasm works. In the theme or the topics that were covered in the chiasm, what would you call A topically? Verse 21 is talking about what? An unfaithful city. Unrighteous. Unfaithful. I'm just going to sum it up. But there's several ideas there, right? B would be what? You'll see the next theme come up. Talking about polluted, right? The value of this people have been polluted or ruined or in some sense they're no longer the quality they should be. Finally, he starts talking about who? Who? the corruption of the of the rulers a righteous city a people polluted with sin a corrupt leadership now the ascent is to work outward in the same topics in reverse but with an opposite slant that's the chiasm chiasm then continues verse 24 therefore the lord of god the lord god of hosts the mighty one of israel declares ah, i will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself of my foes I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie, and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Now, the first one might be tough at first. What's C prime? How many of you think that the leadership chiasm is found at the end? Because it mentions at the end judges and counselors? A good student of Jewish history would know why that's not true. What were the judges? Were they the leaders of Israel? No. Did Israel have earthly leaders prior to Saul? No. That was the whole point. We want a king. Everybody else has got a king. How come we can't have a king? Because it's a theocracy. Because God is your king. I am ruling. And I have judges to adjudicate matters of civil uh, discord, civil disagreement. But I am your ruler. So judges and counselors didn't lead. Who led? Who was the leader? God. Where do you see the leadership expressed in the chiasm as it comes back now in the ascent? Therefore, the Lord God. Who initiates the change? This is a one-way descent to hell, literally. What fixes it? God. What's the theme of this area of, of Isaiah? Sovereignty. He is very artfully taking the three themes we've already addressed because you can see them in there, right? You can see sin, you can see, uh, obviously at the end he starts to talk about redemption, you can see judgment, but in the center, and that's what a chiasm is intended to do, focus your attention on the point, it's funny because it's, it's a play on words, right? in English, the point, the point is God, what is going to solve this problem ultimately for the nation of Israel, God, by his sovereignty. He doesn't give you the answer for how yet. That comes over a series of chapters through the book, but it's already being made here in the early stages of the book. you got a solution, but it starts at the top. You need a new leader, God. C prime then is going to be, therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Who's the mighty one of Israel? Put it in its parallel. In the city, you had unfaithfulness as a city from the polluted population and the corrupt leadership. Backing it out, God takes charge. Who will be the perfect, righteous leader in this faithful city? Christ. So that is Christ. We actually know from what comes later in Isaiah, for that matter, that Christ is the one we're talking about. B prime, to meet up with the B that it was originally there, what we see said next is what? Look at verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. It's almost like, okay, now, who's next? And then it's to the people. And he says, I'll smelt away your dross. In other words, now I'm going to cleanse the people. So this now becomes a cleaning process. I'm just using simple language to compare. And then verse 26, of course, I restore your judges, I restore the counselors. We're talking here about reestablishing the proper structure of the city. And then after that, you will become the city of righteous, righteousness, the faithful city. Isn't that neat? Now, you don't necessarily have to take each chiasm and do that much effort and so on. Sometimes as you look for these, you'll just see them as you're moving through the text. You'll say, oh, wait a minute. That sounds like what I just read. Then you back up and take a second and look at it. Bam, it'll just pop out at you in the text. Extra credit, who are the judges? He says, I will reestablish my judges. Now, anyone here who was paying attention in the last five minutes might have thought to themselves, wait a minute, Steve. Jesus ruling on earth, but there's also judges and counselors. Isn't that kind of redundant? Do I really need any of those if Jesus is ruling? Apparently so. Who are they? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul speaking to that church says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? He says, We know we will be judges on earth with Christ. Judging the world, therefore, he makes his point about what they should be doing in their day. But his point is predicated on this truth, which is not limited, to, by the way, to 1 Corinthians 6 too. That's just one example. Christ tells the apostles, you will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel to those 12 men, to the 12 apostles. So the, the ruling of earth is found ultimately in the head, but he has counselors, he has judges. Now, here's where I would tell you that when we look in other New Testament scripture about Christ, for example, telling us that those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much, and those who are not faithful with things of this world, how will they be entrusted with the true riches of, you know, implying the true riches of the, of the next kingdom? Those verses, Paul's uh, teaching in, in 1 Corinthians with regard to those who would come through the judgment seat of Christ as through fire, but... Then, on the other hand, those who would come having built with precious metal and stones and so on and have something to show for their work. All of these implications of judgment and measuring and testing so as to determine worth or value, I think all come to a head in this sense, that in our role with Christ in the Messianic or Millennial Kingdom, we form the government under him. And by the way, I'm, I'm getting ahead of us in the book a little intentionally, But Isaiah is going to fill out these details tremendously over the course of the book. He will explain the government in great detail. But it's in our role to work with Christ in the support of this government as judges that I believe we're going to see rank, structure. In other words, there will be tangible weight or evidence for who was the most faithful servant today in light of where God places them in that future structure. And we can all agree it's better to be there than not, and that is true, but it doesn't negate the fact that Christ calls us to want to earn that treasure to please our Master, to be a good servant. So it's intended that we know these opportunities are for ours to earn, to show value here, to verify that we're worthy of the opportunity later. Somehow people think that is kind of dirty sometimes, like it puts a taint on the thought of grace or, or on the principle of God bringing us into his presence by grace. Well, of course. It all starts with that. Now he's asking you to do something with it. There's nothing wrong with that. Isaiah continues now to juxtapose these two themes of judgment and redemption like we said already. Now he's going to begin to make references to a future day. And this is going to lead us directly into chapter 2 and I think a really fun opportunity tonight to see what's coming in our discussion of the Messianic Kingdom. He begins to build his eschatology here. Verse 27. Moving from this point of talking. What did he just end on? Right here? You just started talking about a future time, didn't you? Got a little excited, a little interested. Then he moves on. Verse 27. Zion, which is a, uh, another way of referencing Israel in its glory, will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you desired and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or is a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. Zion will be redeemed, he starts. The word redeemed here literally means a price is paid for. Again, he doesn't specify what the price is. That clearly comes later in the book. Then he says, repentant ones will be redeemed with righteousness in contrast, sinners will be crushed together. Notice when he talks about the sinners, he says they will come to an end. And so he, he sets this kind of stark choice, does he not? This real strong dichotomy in this future vision. He says that you will either be rebelling and come to some kind of end, which he doesn't give any detail on, or you'll be redeemed with righteousness. Then... He says, those who are redeemed will look back with embarrassment at their idols. Now, he uses imagery here. He talks about oaks that they preferred and these gardens, which are euphemistic for places of sin, going off and romping in the garden kind of a picture, or these oaks, these tall, standing wooden structures, idols, in other words, that they would be smitten with and would bow down before. He says... They will look back on their preference of those things with embarrassment. And then it says those idols will wither and die. That's the imagery there of the leaf fading. So he's carrying the image all the way to conclusion. He's saying what you stood up and worshipped is an idol in the form of these oaks that he's using metaphorically. He says God's going to wither those. Similarly, those gardens that you preferred, he's going to dry them up. They'll have no water. They'll be blown dry. And... Then look at verse 31 and you'll see the whole picture come together. The strong man will become tender. His work, furthermore, is the spark for the flame. His work is what sets the flame alight. The judgment flame of God. And that the man himself and what fire his work started will burn together the strong man, and his work, burning together, and then finally, nothing will ever quench this burning. you see a picture for me? Let me read you Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What starts the need for judgment? A flame, a the spark, if you will. For the rebellion of Satan is the first instance of rebellion, for which we are told in Scripture that the flames of hell were prepared for them, for the demonic realm, for the angels that rebelled. Then the fall of Adam in the garden to the work of the enemy brought us into bondage with them, made us slaves to the enemy all our lives until we're free from that slavery through faith. The spark for those flames was the work of the strong man who himself will burn forever with his work in that flames. And at the same moment, that you see Christ doing this on earth in conjunction with that moment, generally speaking, you see God wrapping up the enemy and his sin also in this ultimate destination. Moving one chapter further, chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 7, we hear this, "...he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars..." their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That that summary of all those different traits of evil is is one quick, effective way of wrapping up the work of the strong man. The strong man and all his work will burn. So in chapter 1, Isaiah, in that mini-summary of the book, has already raised, (laughs) amazingly, discussion, in short words obviously, of Israel's sin, their unfaithfulness to the covenant and to God, that God's justice will have to bring judgment against them, but yet he promises to bring a full pardon and redemption for some but not all, though a complete restoration of the nation is assured. Let me sum it up in a way that might make it easier for you to understand. Not all of Israel are redeemed, but all sinners are gone. Not all Israel is redeemed. Now I'm talking now about the individual people. Not all who've ever lived within the nation of Israel are redeemed. But in the end, all sinners in Israel are gone such that there is only a perfect, sinless, faithful Israel when God is finished. So follow my point? So the entity moves through time I said Israel could be seen kind of as a person, if you will, the wife of Jehovah. And that person of Israel on any given day is made up of some number of people. And then as time passes, that flow of people, you know, some move through the nation of Israel in their life and die and new ones are born. And so the nation as an entity continues on. And at any given day, some of these are believers, some of these are not. Some will be redeemed, some will not. But in the last time when God is finished with his plan for Israel, every single person in the nation will be faithful and true in a future day. And that's when we can say all Israel will be saved. It is not a promise with respect to some human being that may have been a part of Israel on some given day. Because the entity of Israel is the focus of the Old Testament. The individual in Christ is the focus of the New Testament. With the final with that little mini overview uh, having been done, now we're going to dive into the more detailed overview, beginning in chapter two with a fantastic overview of eschatology or of the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 2 verse one, The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it, and many people will come and say, "Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord." to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Isaiah's opening description here of the last days, it's so iconic. And not just for us today, but even in his own day, one of his contemporaries. Remember, he's not the only prophet alive in this day. Micah, for example, is alive. So is Amos, for example. But Micah quotes this exact passage word for word in his own book. Now, that either means that it had become significant even in his day such that someone like Micah felt it was valuable to incorporate into his own teaching, or perhaps God gave Micah the very same words. But if so, then that would only underscore how important they are to God that he would have two men speak them, right, and write them down and make them part of Scripture at the same time. So it is obviously something important to God, obviously something important for us, and something we should understand and look forward to. I, I will say I'm a little confused when I run into the occasional Christian who seems to kind of not want to know about end times. You know, pooh-poohs it. Oh, you know, it's just not something we're supposed to know about. No one's to know the day and the time. Uh, let's just not talk about that. I always want to look at them and say, well, if I told you what was going to happen to you tomorrow, would you be interested? Maybe a stock tip? Maybe who's going to win the Super Bowl? Wouldn't you have some interest in some of those things? Here's God planning to tell you what's going to happen essentially in your eternity and laying it out for you so you would know it. All right, in the last days. That phrase deserves a moment of our attention just in itself. The phrase is used multiple times in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament and it begs more questions than it answers at least until you study it, right? Last days? Last days? Last days? Well, for example, from a prophet's perspective, in the day it was written, the last days would have meant a future day when God's work among men culminates according to his plan. A sort of culmination point for God's work. The last days. In fact, in Hebrew culture, history is seen simply as a matter of days. In fact, the name, the, the book of Chronicles, the name Chronicles in Hebrew, literally means the words of the day. Where we think of it as a history book, so do they. They just think of it as days. Let's just chronicle the days. Let's just talk about how the days transpired. So Hebrews' view of history is a series of days which have to eventually culminate in some end, the last days. But the more interesting part of that phrase, of course, is the word last. Last in terms of what? For example, elsewhere God uses terms like eternity or forever to describe our future or certain events for all of us. So, when we see the word last, it implies it comes to an end at some point, right? The last. Well, last days, therefore, must refer to a period of time in human history that does, in fact, have an end, otherwise the word last would have no meaning, but yet then must lead to some new state, then which would have no end. Or it could be a cascading series of of states so that we are in the last days of this state, perhaps there's another state, perhaps after that another state, eventually culminating in an eternal state. That's just logic to suggest that based on what we see in Scripture. So there could be a chain of beginnings and ends, but for whatever chain there is, we can say for for sure right now we're in some period of time that has a definitive end. They're known as the last days. Not only does Isaiah talk about them, but very famously in the New Testament, who talks about Jesus himself and Paul quite often. From the Old Testament perspective, which is where we are, the last days was the final state of the world that we have and know today. So the world you're in right now, in its final state, is the last days. And the New Testament confirms this view, but then extends it a little bit by giving us even greater understanding of how those last days play out. For example, it explains what follows the last days in the new heavens and new earth. Did you know that the Old Testament prophets never knew of such a place? Their prophecy into the future ended with the Messianic Kingdom. God never gave an Old Testament prophet any understanding beyond that. It was the New Testament that eventually opened the door for us to know that after the Messianic Kingdom, there would yet be then another time. We call now the new heavens and new earth. That comes in Revelation 21 and 22. Without those two chapters, we wouldn't even know if such a thing exists. Their understanding of the last days culminates in the Messianic Kingdom. Now, we know there's something else, but for the time being, when we study last days in Isaiah's book, you need to understand he's thinking about this period. The days leading up to, meaning right before Christ's return, then also including the time of the Messianic Kingdom. Sometimes it means one, sometimes it means the other, sometimes it means both, but usually one or the other. Context will tell you which one. He begins here with describing a mountain of the house of the Lord that will become the chief mountain of the world. And Gentile people of the world will stream to it. You see he says nations, the word in Hebrew is goi, it means Gentiles. Remember, from a Jewish point of view, there's the Jewish nation and there's everyone else. So by definition, when a Jew wrote and said nations, he was talking about everyone else. So by definition, that meant Gentiles. Then Isaiah uses word pictures here of a river streaming, people coming to honor God in this house where God sits on top of a mountain that's higher than any other, and nations of people streaming, rivers of people coming. And the reference here to height, this tall mountain, it could be literal, meaning it could be a very, very tall mountain, so tall it's the highest in the world, or it could be metaphoric, meaning a high place of honor. But when we look in other texts, it's clear it's, also, it's, it's both. It's literal and, of course, honored because God is there. Zechariah is where we're going to go now. If we're going to go to chapter 14. This is a later prophet, historically a later prophet than Isaiah. So God gives more detail about the mountain that he is describing here in Isaiah 2 in Zechariah 14. And I'm going to go back up from 6 onwards so that you can get the context of what's going on in this chapter of Zechariah. He's describing... Last days, he's describing the, the side of the last days prior to Christ's return, through the return of Christ, and into the next phase. He covers, he spans the, the whole, the juncture. So in verse 6 he says, "...in that day there will be no lights, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light." And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and in his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now you can see why Jerusalem's on a high mountain. Everything else is flat. There's a plain. And it will come about in that day that the king of the earth is the Lord and he is the only one. Now, Ezekiel gives you a nice picture of this mountain. He devotes nine chapters to it. If you want to read it, Ezekiel 40 through 48. What he spends most of his time talking about is what's on top of this mountain. Jerusalem uh, is part of a complex that is 50 miles by 50 miles, 2,500 square miles. That's how tall the top of this mountain is, 2,500 square miles, according to Ezekiel. Inside it is the temple. The temple itself on top of this mountain is a full mile square all by itself. Jerusalem is 10 miles by 10 miles, 100 square miles just for the city. And then there's other land devoted to producing food for the inhabitants of the city. And the Levites, who you know live in the temple, they're provided, or they live with the temple, they're provided land on top of this mountain. This is the chief mountain of the world from which God rules for 1,000 years. Ezekiel goes into great lengths to describe it. So I'll hand a couple of these out. These are downloadable from the web on the same page as the rest of our Isaiah teaching. There's, on the left-hand side, you'll see links for downloads for handouts. So you can grab these, your own copy off the web. But I'm going to hand a couple of these around. This chief mountain he's describing here is the final state of government on earth in the last days. And this kingdom that is set up at the top of this mountain is a kingdom that is established once Christ comes back to rule. And what we'll do when we come back next week is I want to show you how in chapters 2 and 7 of Daniel, the arrival of this mountain... And its certainty in terms of timing is established for us. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because it will get us well off the track if we do. This will not be a comprehensive teaching on that. If you want that, you'll have to go to our Revelation class uh, online. But it will give you a sense of where in Daniel, we'll read a couple of passages out of Daniel, where we see this mountain being given more specific detail. This is the opening salvo in chapter 2 of Isaiah for this coming kingdom that we will all participate in as part of God's government. Remember, if he comes back for us, which he could do at any point in the rapture, and soon thereafter we believe the tribulation kicks off of seven years, that would mean that on any given day, Mac, we're seven years away from this. Potentially, on any given day, right? If today were the rapture, you could say maybe there's a bit of time between the rapture and the tribulation. There could be, but then thereafter, seven years starts. You're into the millennial kingdom shortly or thereafter. I hope you think like that because Scripture calls us to think like that. You're not studying something of the distant future. You could be studying something that happens in the near future. So, let's go to Lord in Prayer, and uh, we'll come back in next week in two and finish two. Dear Lord, we marvel at the plan that you have produced in your word and are working out in the world today in front of us, that as the uh, details of it are unveiled in Scripture, Father, it just causes us to marvel and to feel the, the blessing that is to be part of this plan, Father, to be in the family of God by faith. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. And Father, we do look forward to a day when we can serve you in that eternal realm, but let us not lose opportunity and and perspective to serve you even now. Grant us eyes for eternity, Father, to see our work now as having meaning in that day and to be diligent even as we wait. Thank you, Father, for the patience and the dedicated attendance of so many. And, Father, I do pray that you would continue to draw them and others even as you would in the weeks to come.